0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the cast of Ka, where we talk about all things related to The Dark Tower by Stephen King. I'm your host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my content, and now apparently my traveling buddy, the one and only DJ.
1: If you weren't here for the uh, pre-show discussion, (laughs) we are going to travel the world as soon as lockdown is over. Oh, dude, the world is not ready. (laughs) Maybe uh, get some turkey in Turkey for Thanksgiving. Oh
0: i totally want to go to turkey they have so many cats there
1: (laughs) and that is not the reason you pick turkey folks but if it is (laughs) that's fine with me
0: don't Uh, yuck my young dj all
1: right so we are back for another episode of the cast of we are one day late my fault um i was having too good of a time playing dr mario and drinking at the bar but rachel (laughs) what have you been up to since the last show
0: well, I mean, I'm still in lockdown, so not a ton has been going on. You're putting me on the spot here a little bit. Playing a lot of video games as well. I'm playing one that I wonder if you would like. It's called The Return of the Obra Den. Have you ever heard of it?
1: I have not.
0: It's a super fun black and white game where you basically are investigating what happened on this ship. Okay. Because everybody on it is dead, and the goal of the game is to figure out who everybody is and how they died. And it has like a kind of cool sort of Lovecraftian mystery to it. And if you play video games with your partner, it's super, super fun because you can solve the puzzle together. So that is what I've been doing, and it is two thumbs up for me so far.
1: We've uh, actually been group playing a game similar to that called Among Us, oh, where like I've everybody is thrown started a room and one person is the killer or maybe two people, depending uh-huh. on the number of folks. And then everybody else is just assigned mundane tasks, like starting the reactor and like, uh-huh. fixing electrical in whatever room. And then you go around trying to figure out who's murdering people and then like, everybody's like, it's not me, not me, not me. And then you have to vote on it. Yep. I
0: played it once and it was really fun. I feel like you need a lot of people to maximize it though. We played it with a small group and it was like, eh. And then we added a couple people and it got a little more fun.
1: No, we've had twelve to fourteen people showing oh, up, so shit. it's actually been somewhat legit. In fact, the entire Dead Lantern crew has been getting together for that. Fun. So if it's you super want to fun. join in, Rachel, just let us know.
0: Well, let me uh, know. I'm down to play. I've played it. I think it's fun. I, if you send me an invite, I'll totally hop in.
1: <laughs> the other thing, I don't know if you saw the pictures, but giant pergola going up. In my front yard.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. I also saw that your movie is about to be on Amazon
1: Prime. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, that one's a whole other story. (laughs) But, uh, uh, you know, you live, you learn. (laughs) Okay, we'll save that for the
0: post-show chat. All right, so where are we at here now? All right, so here's our plan for this episode. We are already off the rails. It's going to be one of those nights, everybody. All right, we're going to kick off the show with an in depth conversation about Wizard and Glass Part Two, Susan Chapter Four, long after Moonset. And then we're going to close out the show again with some fun listener question that I ask. Again, this one's just kind of a goofy, fun one, but I feel like, I don't know, it's fun. It's a fun thought experiment, but we'll get there. We'll get there. So before we go any further though, DJ, can you please let our listeners know what our spoiler policy is around
1: these parts? (laughs) <laughs> uh so um, uh well let's not go that direction um let me try something else so uh i was about to go political but i do not want to get into no, that no, no 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 <laughs> so <laughs> what i will say is we will take our mud stick and draw a line in the dirt that is gross and yucky and you do not want to step in or cross because it'll get on your shoes and probably in your house and stink things up mm. and that is the line that we call the spoiler zone so we will let you know with our mud stick slapped against <laughs> ground that we are crossing into a zone that may possibly spoil future things in the book if we decide to cross that point i don't see that happening in this particular section but we will definitely give you a heads up if we decide to go into the wild
0: yeah i have some spoilers for the after review but i will definitely warn everybody when we get there when we get into Ah. the facebook question i have major spoilers in my suggestion but that's later don't worry about that right now don't worry about that right now (laughs) all right where did we last leave off with our friends
1: okay so we had roland and susan making out in the moonlight on a horse (laughs) am i making out i mean one peck on the on the lips
0: by the way not to interrupt you but did you notice that somebody felt very called out on the facebook about your horse person hate i saw (laughs) (laughs) i freaking died i was like oh
1: (laughs) I told you it's a culture. There's a culture of horse people. It's just a thing. That's a legit thing. I thought it was just a one off until I realized that no, there's an entire subculture of people that are really into horses more so than you could describe on paper. So, there Okay, you go. sorry. Go thing. ahead, sir.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, Let's not even go down this path again. Where were we? Where
2: were we?
1: Uh, to all our horse people out there, gallop along and enjoy yourself. <laughs> you you try your life your best trot life out there i don't know whatever <laughs> the horse people do we left off with susan and roland getting a little kissy faced and also her flashing a little bit of undergarments as she dismounts gams. and mounts um mm-hmm. and while this is tame by our standards this was probably pretty high uh in the uh high speech so to speak basically we left off with uh, susan heading her way and roland heading his way and the promise being made that when they meet again they will be meeting for the first time Mm -hmm. and carry that thought with you as we move forward because Roland decides to ride back up to camp he's feeling a little flummoxed and a a little bit of fluttery heart as he wanders into camp and Mm -hmm. sees a giant white skull that immediately creeps you out turns out this is his buddy Keith Burtz Nice little, like, (laughs) warden, I guess, Uh, um, scarecrow, friend in travel, a big skull that he he basically carries around with him, and it's, it's funny because, like, he's a jokester, and then immediately they paint it as not a joke but something ominous, and then it drifts back into the jokey realm again. And so, like, Roland rolls into camp. He's got Keith Burt there, and he wakes up right away and starts talking to Roland. Roland looks a little flushed. They hear snoring in the background. This is their other companion. There's a little bit of back and forth between the two, and Roland wants to go by his actual secret name, which is Will Dearborn, and Keith Burt has kind of refused to use that, and Roland actually, like, sort of scolds him and says, like, listen, if you want me to be okay and survive you need to stick to this little dearborn business and keithbert kind of like finds his his cool and like apologize for that he also sort of senses that roland has a bit of mojo going on Mm -hmm. and roland has an internal battle with himself as to whether he's going to explain what happened to him Or not, and decides not to let them know about Susan, and that they may as well be in the same boat as meeting her for the first time when they go to this dinner the next day, and then basically uh, a little bit of discussion about the Dark Tower and uh, you know what they've got coming forward for him, and then kind of a little preview of his father and Roland in his mind as Roland's like self internalizing how he ended up on this path to go count the number of uh, wells in an area and this sort of explains that maybe his mom wasn't painted in the same light as we thought she was originally when we first heard about her and also that there is more to misty eye with the takeover of these smaller areas and <laughs> (laughs) the good man john farson Mm -hmm. and his gang and i'm gonna stop there because rachel warned me ahead of time that she has a lot to say on these and they are something that i would otherwise breeze by pretty fast so
0: yeah yeah that
1: that seems like a pretty good stopping point right
0: yeah i mean basically after that it's just rolling thinking about susan and dreaming about her
1: yeah, I, I mean, I, if you want to think about boys' dreams of uh-huh. the most passionate love oh, yeah. and love mixed together, that's fine. Same with the Susan descriptions later on. Yeah. I'm not going to dive too deep into those unless you really want to, like, I you mean, know, fl-
0: flick they're the worth bean. noting, but I don't need a blow-by-blow. But yeah. I know I'm skipping to the end here, but like you said, the 14 year old dreams, it really does reinforce what a kid he is that he just dreams about kissing her over and over and over again. It's obviously a very feisty, sexy dream, but it's not super
1: explicit. It's very pure. Well, okay, so Stephen King actually goes the extra mile to tell you that no one dreams more passionately than like a adolescent person yeah. in love because their feelings are mixed up with their feelings, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a way that's stronger and more nuanced than it is later in life when like your brain leads and not other bits.
0: Yeah. But I mean the content of it. I mean I'm not saying it wasn't Oh, no, no, it's it's a sex 13 But it was like he just kissed her over and over and over again, and then she's calling to him to come see her for the first time. It just feels so pure compared to, you know, what it could potentially be. And it just – it's the dream of someone who has limited experience, I think, <laughs> that kind of drives home, which is something throughout this section that I, I – like I said, I'm getting ahead of myself that really this section – kind of because it is in contrast to a section we have later in this chapter, really does remind you that we're dealing with kids
1: here. Well, and what you're saying is actually a really good point because Roland, even when he's daydreaming about her, thinks about the Lady of the Night that he was with earlier Mm -hmm. on. And how she wouldn't let him kiss her, yes. and he was so like betrayed by that at the time. And now he's happy that that didn't right. happen because he got to save his first kiss for right, this his lady, which is such like a weird backwards forwards, strange, you know, like two beds for a married couple unless they're going to a cohort type of thing.
0: <laughs> I mean, I know that's like a stereotype of sex workers not being willing to kiss, but I don't think that's true. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Okay, so let's step back to the beginning of the chapter. When we first pick up with Roland, you know, it's been very tricky to understand exactly what his internal experience is. Because up until this point, their interaction has totally been through the perspective of Susan. And I don't think she really knows him well to properly read him. And so this is our first chance to really get inside of his head. And I don't know that there is a more clear way to show you exactly how hot and bothered the poor kid is that he had to ride his horse back and forth for two hours just to cool (laughs) down that is the horse person's equivalent of a a cold shower i guess but there's this (laughs) this note about what he really wants to do is gallop right to just have this reckless abandon and i think that that is very emblematic of what is happening internally with him is that he wants to feel like that free spirit and just to give way to like his heart is bursting. Right. But of course he's Roland. And even though he's young Roland at his core, he is Roland. So he has to be very careful about how he does it. And it's thinking about the safety and he has court in his, his mental ear talking about how fools are the only folk on earth who absolutely can count on getting what they deserve. And which just so totally Roland. I think King does a very good job of balancing young Roland and who he was before all the world weariness, but also making it feel like the character that we know.
1: Well, yeah. He, uh, when he's thinking about galloping, he's like, if you want to cool your blood, that's one way to do it faster. A- as a reference to like, you know, someone catches him running around and they could likely just shoot him and then he would get cold, right? right? <laughs> you
0: know? Right. I mean, he's correct. You know, on one hand, you can see the 14 year old in that and then
1: also the... The, the kind of adult, darker Roland yeah. that's alluding mm-hmm. to death and despair.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, Roland. It's so sad considering here he is this young kid and you're like, man, it's about to get rough for you for a really long time, brother. <sighs> okay. So when he calms down enough from his very sexy smooch with Susan, he finally heads back to camp and we finally get to meet the much discussed but never seen before Goosebert. And I feel like this introduction, like you said, it starts with him basically playing a prank on Roland, says so much both about Roland, but about their relationship. Because can you imagine Roland of now, how he would respond if Eddie played a prank on him?
1: It wouldn't go over smoothly. It would
2: not
0: be well received. But I think that the first thing we learn about Cuthbert being that he's a prankster it gives us a, a clear picture of his character, at least a portion of his character. And we get, in addition to that, Roland talks a little bit about their history together and their dynamic. So we've heard Cuthbert's name plenty, but it has always been through the lens, except for in the first book, we get a couple flashbacks, but primarily it's always been through the lens of how he and Eddie are similar. And I think it's interesting here because I don't know that they're actually that similar. Except for that they have sense of humors and some additional depth to them.
1: Well, okay. So in uh, Roland's musings about his father, his father even makes comment of Cuthbert's laughing, hysterical, Mm -hmm. like, take anybody but that jokester with you. (laughs) Because he's (laughs) like like the worst, you know, can't stand that guy. Uh, A part of that is sort of a reflection of Eddie's character as like a sarcastic, jokey, not just the jokes though, but like the flamboyant loudness of a person that fits into that category and so uh, imagine a person like eddie but painted through the lens of what is an old-timey world it would be like shakespeare in modern times you know Mm -hmm. you you have like the jokester in in the original shakespeare but you go to modern times and the jokester is even more over the top because culture has changed in such a way that like over the top's represented by a different line and mark than it is you know in this older tiny way so to me the eddie keithbert comparison is sort of like with reference to the time period that it's in and like the age of roland so if you think about it from roland's perspective Young Roland is still in this sort of prim and proper old timey, you know, measuring things with wheels and so on. Mm -hmm. And then the road worn Roland from Eddie's time is experienced a lot and advanced in age to the point where the world is different than it was in this more simpler time. Still complicated, but like it was still simpler than it is in the Eddie time. Mm -hmm. And so that same moving forward is sort of like the difference between, you know, wearing a dress and wearing a skirt in modern times.
0: It's just less formal. I see what you're saying.
1: Exactly. It's just a hair down version of the original. He's constrained by his times and his times were more prim and proper. But had he been born of Eddie's times, he probably would have been an Eddie, you know?
0: I mean, I guess I just think about... We actually have the benefit of knowing what Eddie was like at around 14. True. In all of these flashbacks that he had with Henry. And I find their characters to be very dissimilar. But, you know, like you said, maybe it is a perspective around the period of time and the culture. But I just felt like Eddie is more of a serious person who has kind of a trash-talking mouth. And he isn't necessarily joyful, he's a little more sarcastic, whereas Cuthbert is described as always kind of having simmering laughter in in everything that he says, more of a mirthful kind of humor.
1: Hmm, so you think he's more jolly?
0: Yeah, I think whereas there's a certain degree of cynicism to Eddie's sense of humor, a little bit more, you know, street smart, a little more world-weary.
1: Well, so on that point, I would, I would again, point to ages. I think like,
0: that's probably, there's some of that, but I also just feel like they have different
1: sense of humor. Yeah, maybe, like, okay, so Eddie probably, I mean, I guess I'm putting a lot of words in Eddie's mouth, but before everything went sideways, and he had a brother that wasn't doing as good as him, and, like, a mom that kind of left him out to run rampant, and the hard streets have, like, worn him down, and heroin, mm-hmm. and so on, he was a young man, and, like, Keith Burt's in the same boat right now. He's had some rough goes. Like, he was probably one of Court's kids and was in this old-timey place where, like, you probably got whacked upside the head if you were mouthing yeah. off, stuff like that. Then that was just appropriate and normal. Now, in Eddie's time, it would be more abusive and traumatizing. Mm-hmm. And then you just continue to pile that on. Well, we have had hints of things going sideways with him and Roland and the rest of the gang. As the world moved on, and I can't remember which ones they are, so I don't want to spoil anything that I know for future. But there are some like scenes that are painted in previous books where it's like, you know, if only this hadn't happened, or if this hadn't happened, or if we hadn't dropped this or lost that. And they're sort of dark portraits. And you kind of get the feel, or at least to me, I got the feeling that he's on that path to being. Eddie, but he just hasn't Mm. gone through all of the horrible experiences yet to get there? I mean,
0: that could be. I guess I just feel like Eddie's sense of humor is a self-defense mechanism, Mm. whereas Cuthbert seems more like a funny, class clown, jokey kind of guy. But I mean, we've only seen him for like two minutes, so my opinion may completely change over the course of this book. But right away, I was kind of expecting there to be a lot more to of them in common. Get that same kind of wit that I don't think really we've seen so much with Cuthbert, at least not yet. But it could, like you said, all your reasoning could very well be con- contributing to that. So, like I said, we get a little bit of insight into Roland's dynamic with him as well. Basically, they've known each other their entire lives to the point where they shared baby toys. And yet, despite knowing him literally his whole life, he doesn't understand. He just can't wrap his brain around like how Cuthbert works. Which is interesting because I feel like as an audience, we kind of do get Cuthbert pretty quickly. He seems pretty apparent in his character based on the story about hacks and also how he's acting in the situation and just, you know, living in the world and experiencing different types of personality types. And so I think we learn a little bit about Roland as well. The way that his mind works and the way that his character is and how he's sort of kind of one-dimensional and like what you see is what you get with Roland and he's kind of serious person that he just can't really comprehend The complexity of Cuthbert's personality. And that's why I was saying I think maybe he draws those comparisons between Eddie and Cuthbert. is because in the same way that Eddie's personality is kind of obscured to Roland, he just kind of chalks it up like these are jokey, funny guys.
1: So Hacks the Cook and, like, them going to the gallows, that's sort of like an Eddie-style experience. And the way that Cuthbert experiences that is a similar sort of experience to Eddie and his brother in that it's like Mm -hmm. a waitful change of life. Can't stop staring at death, but death is there in front of you sort of thing.
2: Okay. And
1: I bet you if there had been some grass to chew on (laughs) that was available or some heroin to to start kicking up, it could have led to uh, the wrong type of habits. If you had a brother or a sister that were like, Hey, get into this Hmm. i don't know maybe i'm wrong
0: no i mean i these are this is all conjecture so and it's your opinion so you're definitely not wrong
1: well you know I, i could be off base i guess i don't know the the thing is is so to me it feels like stephen king has tried really hard to tell us like these guys are very similar and so then when we get to this point and i look at it and i'm not sure Then I have to almost start building my own case to be like, yeah, Stephen King planned this all along. This is how it is. (laughs) You know, don't even worry about it. The emperor wears clothes after all. Like, it's fine.
0: The emperor wears clothes. (laughs) (laughs) I hear so funny. Uh, There's a couple other little fun character details that come up here, like Cuthbert's horse is named Glue Boy. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and I love Roland's sort of a side, like, he can't even name a horse normally. Just, like, his exasperation with Cuthbert, just, that made me laugh. I enjoyed that. And the other thing is, is that this is the first time we see a character who this reoccurs when we get into the Susan chapter where right away he spots that there's something up with Roland, you know, that something is different. And it kind of, to me, sort of made me feel like. Coosbert, for all of his silliness and this introduction of him as this sort of gangly boy with no shirt on who's playing pranks and forgetting to call Roland by the right name, like, he actually is pretty observant, and that could be gunslinger training, whatever the case may be, but it also could just be that even though Roland maybe doesn't know Cuthbert that well... I think Cuthbert knows Roland pretty well, that he's able to pick on that instantly. I mean, it's practically the first thing out of his mouth when he sees him is that he sees that something has changed. Something has shifted. There's something going on with Roland.
1: Now, are you sure that's not just young person, easy to catch? Like, so uh, you've been young once. I was young once. You had a friend that fell deeply in love like one day for no apparent reason with whatever rando walked in front of him. And then like... They came over to your place, and immediately you knew like the talk was coming. And then it like rolls into this long, exasperated discussion about how they're gonna win the influence of of said person over, or, or what have you. That's a pretty easy tell when everybody has basically been blank slates in the love department for you know yeah 13 and I mean, it just years. it was
0: so quick; it was like on site. Roland barely even got to get a word
1: out, and he was like, what's different here? Hmm. I mean, he's, like, practically glowing. He's so excited. Right! Plus, how many yes. times does Stephen King mention the warmth downstairs and upstairs? he's places. just pitching
0: a tent, and he's just like, something's different about you. I can't put my finger on it.
1: <laughs>
0: exactly. That's
1: sort of what I was imagining. Maybe I'm Okay. Wrong.
0: Maybe I'm selling teenage boys short. Maybe you guys do notice when the other person is
1: fallen in love. I mean the the guys that I knew growing up that met someone and fell in love immediately their faces were flushed they were sweaty they, uh, they were like glassy-eyed and dreamy in like a holy shit. A stupid way and this is the girl that <laughs> dates him for like two weeks and is like i got a note from some other guy and now he's my boyfriend it's like <laughs> not even real <laughs> legit stuff you know you're not making out with anybody even yet and so if that's the case for the kids i do then like this is back when like All you right. had to take someone's Hand and like walk over to their father and ask for their father's permission to like, ask them to marry you, sort of place. And so he got kissed. Damn, <laughs> that's like extramarital <laughs> business right there, right? I mean, I don't. Okay,
0: <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> here, here I am trying to read into everything, and you're just peeing all over my parade. <laughs> Plus, you know, horse people, so like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay so then the other thing we find out of this is that elaine is present and you mentioned this already but he's off snoring and i mean i don't know that there's a ton here except for there is a parallel to a character later in this section so it's worth just sort of mentioning that elaine was there but not awake but overall this whole section to me just really reinforced again that these guys are kids are just they're just kids they're Clearly in over their head, as we find out as this chapter goes on, they're treating this like it's an adventure. You know, Roland is as serious as he can be at 14, but he's still just 14. You see that in the way that he chastises Cuthbert for not calling him Will Dearborn and calling him a gunslinger. But then he immediately asks where Elaine is. So even he's not really adhering to the rules because, you know, I they're young and they just haven't been through that much yet. And so they don't really fully understand the stakes that they're in they may have some gunslinger training but by no means are they veteran gunslingers and so knowing what they're kind of heading into right now it is fairly ominous and very clear that these kids for all of Roland's smarts and good instincts and all that stuff it's it's not looking great
1: so one thing I want to underline here before we move on and I just want to make sure we touch on it is when Roland's sort of having the flashback of his dad explaining what's going on mm-hmm. in the world and what they must do, and that he needs to take three, you know, a party with them to go to these places or whatever. And like, this is probably the safest of the places he could go out of the unsafe mm-hmm. world. His father mentions a game of castles. Yeah. And that's something I wanted to just make sure and like underline three times, because we yeah. will hear this mentioned a few more times throughout this section. And later on, and While it's not a game I'm familiar with, or even if I know if it's an actual like card game or something like that, it's basically like a reference to the fact that there are pretty high stakes going on with society. Right. And people are trying to take over governments, spout all kinds of different (laughs) nonsense and sense at the same time about people's places in life and so on it's just a, a very heavy thing to introduce a small smaller young person to mm. that like Roland kind of just rolls past but doesn't actually swallow whole and understand in its entirety I think yeah no absolutely I
0: agree completely yeah I think castles is just war games essentially right it's risk or chess or something it's a strategy <laughs> game
1: a t-shirt that says "Thermonuclear war
0: yeah <laughs> would you like to play Thermonuclear war Oh my God, I love that movie when I was a kid.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so did we miss anything else in, in that section? Before uh, we yeah, won? I
0: want to talk a little bit more about his conversation with his dad. So okay. that's a great sort of segue. So obviously once Roland has calmed down a little bit, he lays down and we get a flashback to basically the scenes that followed his conversation with his father in the brothel. And we learn quite a bit and yet... A lot still remains mystery, which is actually kind of mentioned in the text about how, you know, Stephen told him a lot, but not everything. And that's true for us as an audience as well. We start to have a better picture of what is happening in the backdrop of this thing. So like you said, there's a mention of the fact that his mother is more of a victim in the situation than we originally believed. Don't exactly know what that means yet, but we know that maybe she was less of a participant than we initially assumed. We also learn that the reason that Steven was in Cressia with his fellow gunslingers was that he was hunting down the pink glass that we now, as an audience know, is hiding under Ria's shack. Right. Mm-hmm. We also learn a little bit about Farson, who is not such a good man after all. We find out that his tactics involve Basically, destroying whole towns, slaughtering all the people, setting it on fire, putting heads on the on the walls of the city to greet people to remind them what the consequences are if you don't go along with him. Stephen DeChaine makes the ultimate sort of understatement when he says that this is very persuasive
2: politics (laughs) you
0: know and so this is our reference to playing castles right that essentially the towns are not taking this upstart very seriously when he comes around talking about democracy and you know getting rid of these archaic fairy tales that is the feudal system right until it's Mm -hmm. too late and suddenly you know their town's on fire and everybody's dead so What's interesting about this is twofold. One, like I said, we find out more about Farson than we have until this point. He's just sort of been this amorphous threat and like antagonist for Gilead. But now we're getting a little bit more about his tactics and what his agenda is, or at least his perceived agenda. We know that there's probably something more going on because of the whole pink glass thing, right? But we also find out that the gunslingers that are rolling with Stephen Duchesne, don't really take this that seriously. Sure, they do to some degree, but they they consider both what's happening in the gutting of the city at injuries and what's happening with Cressia, citing against the affiliation with Farson to be small potatoes. And so it begs the question of like, okay, so if that's small potatoes, what's big potatoes? What
1: are the big potatoes?
0: Right. We don't get an answer, but my... Educated, not educated, but my, because I don't actually know, but my assumption is it must have to do with the fact that they understand that there's something larger at stake here, that there's a force beyond what's happening with this good man. Maybe they're already hip to there being problems with the Dark Tower. Unclear, but as gunslingers, you have to ask yourself what would they invest themselves in if not the fact that there's an insurgent army slaughtering people of the baronies, right? So, Mm -hmm. unclear.
1: So, in previous books and up until now, we have had pictures painted of larger armies mm-hmm. and destruction. So, I kind of think this is just maybe alluding to that. Because, like, what's big for a small barony and the glass bastions of society in the world? But a sweeping war that would engulf the entire sub-community of these little, like, hamlets, basically. Because, like, even when he talks to Susan, their town is the biggest you know we're mm-hmm. rolling from the biggest city and that's an exciting place like you know you're from la or new york if you're from there right and like they're rolling into a town that's what you know 200 people ish mm-hmm. you know 300 people interesting so like you know that's that's basically the like small town being excited about the village
0: right or I see vice what you versa mean you think it's more a case of arrogance. They're like, it's not like it's Gilead. It's just these crummy little farm towns. Yep,
1: exactly, exactly. So like, I'm from Nebraska, so I'll use that as an example. You take Hampton, Nebraska, which is like 300 people, and Aurora still stands. It's a, 10,000 people? Holy crap, that's the city. This is just like, you know, burn down someone's barn and a fire happened. Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, that could very well be it. And I could see sort of if the gunslingers have kind of, in their minds, always been around and always been, you know, this force. They might not really see the threat until it's too late, which is exactly what happened in Injuries, right? So I could see that maybe he's laying out a pattern there. The only other thing that makes me kind of unsure which way to go with this is that this leads into this conversation where they're having this unspoken conversation about the Dark Tower, right? It's already in Roland's mind. Maybe there's something bigger happening here. And... It's interesting because, you know, even though they don't talk about it, the fact that Roland is already thinking about the Dark Tower, basically what we're witnessing at this point is sort of the inception of the Dark Tower thing in his life, right? He is not in the grips of the Tower mania that we know in the current day Roland, but this is the first moment where he's really thinking about it. And so... I feel like on the timeline of Roland, an important moment, even though it doesn't really expand to anything in this section.
1: Fair enough. All right. You ready to move on to the next bit?
0: The one last thing is just the irony of Steven. We find out the reason that Roland has been sent to Majus with his friends is because Steven thinks like, oh, this is the one last place. You know, nowhere is really safe, but this is pretty safe. It's this pokey little town. It's out on the edge near the sea. You're good. You're good. Without realizing that, ironically, this is probably the worst place that he could send them because we now know that the thing that he is actively looking for, the thing that is sort of the central issue that he's facing right now, has actually been secreted away into this town. And, you know, is being guarded by some unsavory folk that are definitely extremely dangerous to Roland and his friends. So he threw him basically out of the pan and into the fire by sending him off. (laughs) Yeah, so that's it for this section.
1: All right, so next up, we kind of get this, it's sort of the Star-Crossed Lover's Grease intro where, like, (laughs) we started with him and now we're with her. And, like, they're both, like... Summer loving it (laughs) happened so
2: fast, (laughs)
0: right? You're not wrong, I would not have gone there, but you are a hundred percent (laughs) accurate.
1: So now we have Susan's perspective. Um, basically, after that meetup, she like rolled into the house glowing to her aunt. It's Cordelia, right? That's her aunt's, yeah, Aunt Cord. Mm -hmm. Anyway, she she rolls in and and gets to. uh, her aunt's house and her aunt has stayed up late and we start to realize how long that susan was like sort of hypnotized during that last little bit where her fingers were running through her hair and so Mm -hmm. on and it's pretty late enough so that her aunt's like did something go wrong were you not proven honest you know like what's up girl And Susan's kind of having this internal dialogue about her aunt and how like her aunt was sweet as molasses for all this time until she'd gotten so far into this mess that there was no escaping for her. And then she'd reverted back to her old crotchety, crummy ways. We also find out that her aunt has been squirreling away money and complaining about everything and basically excited to receive coins for each step of the progress that Susan makes in this bond with her new future studmeister. And, <laughs> and the so, knuckle uh, you know, yes. Susan's got a little bit of bitterness. Also, she's sort of thinking about her dad a little bit as she's remembering this experience and how Ka will whisk you away at the least opportune time and you won't expect it. And she even has a little bit of a moment where she stops and thinks, why is this happening to me now? You know, why couldn't this happen any other time? This is like the least good time for this to happen. But during all those turmoil-driven thoughts, she's also sort of trying to bite her tongue to not lash out at her aunt, who she has clearly started to develop a little bit of grumpiness with. Mm -hmm. And as her aunt accuses her of being late and then looking like she's glowing, it's funny because Susan looks at her aunt and realizes that her aunt is kind of an old maid yeah i guess yeah and because she's an old maid has like never seen or experienced the whimsical nature of falling for someone or having hot flashes about somebody Mm -hmm. and we even get that back to when ria was like i never taught her how to do that (laughs) (laughs) you're like oh okay And, and so like susan like bites her tongue but doesn't use any excuses so she even has this like sort of internal dialogue where she's like, you know, normally I would make an excuse for my aunt and tell her like, I was up to this or that. But instead, Susan doesn't even really try. And then her aunt sort of wants to know, did she prove you? And Susan gives her the paper and the paper says honest on it. And her aunt's very excited. And then Susan, because she can't be mean directly to her aunt, sort of indirectly snipes at her mm-hmm. by first letting her know that her meeting ritual with her new I'm going to just keep referring to him as Studmeister cuz I've already
0: forgotten his name. <laughs> Thorin Hart the Studmeister. Thor, yeah,
1: Lord Thorin the Studmeister. <laughs> They're going to be taking longer than expected because Rhea has basically told her that she can't hook up with him until after the reaping moon. Uh is it reaping moon? I think it's reaping yes, moon. Anyway, that's a demon moon after the reaping. After the reaping for the demon moon. Okay, yes. those are there's a moon and reaping definitely and there's somewhere. <laughs> So she tells her that, and her aunt's awestruck. Like, what? God stopped almost. I think that's the term. Gob stopped. Uh, Gob smacked. Where... What's that? Gob smacked. Gob smacked. Maybe that's the term. Yeah. Just, you know, my idioms are uh, horrible. I've lived all over They're the just, place. You got uh, a DJ
0: re- remix, dude. It's the DJ <laughs> remix.
1: <laughs> Regardless, uh she's like taken back by this information. She's sort of is cycling through the fact that, oh, man, I'm not going to get paid this substantial sum of money and get these other benefits for quite some time if it's going to take that long before you right. know, Susan can hook up with Lord Thorin. And so that is a big blow to her. And then Susan is letting her sort of process that, and her aunt's holding onto this piece of paper and her aunt is basically telling her not to be a mouthy brat and to go to bed. And Susan's like, give me that paper back. Rhea said, you're not supposed to have it. Only I am supposed to carry mm-hmm. it to Lord Thorin. And her aunt has the gall to snap back at her. Like a young girl like you being in charge of something important like this. <laughs> and yeah. You can tell like Susan swallows that yeah. like a pro, but is like, oh yeah, young to be responsible for this paper but not too young to bear the child of this guy and be in in this giant deal and make you all this money it's kind of fun and it's also kind of dark and also timely in Mm -hmm. the nature of the society you have all of these bits where susan holds back the most cutting conversational pieces that she could throw at her aunt but is still considered by her aunt to be a sassy upstart who's stepping beyond her bounds to say things. (laughs) And Susan is secretly even madder than that level to a Mm -hmm. point where she would love to just lash out at her aunt and refuses to, but these small cuts are still big things for her aunt. And so uh, that whole situation kind of comes to a conclusion with her aunt saying that she needs to like wash her mouth out was so basically, right? It's like and the go to nerve bed. of this bitch. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, damn, girl. You know, like uh, I, I, I don't think I'd talk to her like that if she's your your milking cow. You know, she's making you all that money. <laughs> patting her on the head and making sure her brains are straight so she goes to bed and i'm kind of telling this backwards because really it starts with uh, her in bed remembering all this but it feels better to tell it in the right order of happening So, so she rolls into bed and then we get the, like, standard sort of Stephen King and young sexuality yeah,
0: Bless painting
1: that's always, like, a little hard to get Everything's
0: through. Everything's throbbing and, and fiery and torch-like and, yeah. Yep, there's <laughs> a lot of
1: a warm spots and hard bits and, <laughs> and that sort of thing. Susan is like, I can't fall asleep, but I remember this trick that Rhea taught me, and then, like, oh, Roland, and then the old bean-flicking time, and then, like, <laughs> Oh. <laughs> finally is like that's the only thing that will put me to sleep (laughs) and then she falls to sleep hard (laughs) and and i I mean that's that's pretty much it right yeah pretty much pretty much i mean there's a couple little
0: things in here i don't know that there's as much as there was in the roll-in section but there are a couple things that we should touch on and first of all is we've heard a lot about aunt cord but now we finally met her and guess what she sucks even more than we thought she was gonna suck the fact that when her niece has gone off to do something that is fully traumatic and we now know that cord actually knows how traumatic it is because she says her like did you cry she likes it when they cry (laughs) but when she walks in the door court doesn't even bother to look up or comfort her check on her anything she just wants to know why she's late Which Mm -hmm. is just, you know, I feel like that little tiny moment really tells you quite a bit about Cord. In fact, I feel like we get to know absolutely everything we need to know about this character in this very brief section. We find out that she has been, up until this point, been very sweet to Susan in order to get her to agree to the situation with Hartthorne. And then the minute she got her way, she went back to being nasty. And Susan is kind of relieved because she's like, okay, at least I know this version of you. But it just shows you how absolutely manipulative she was being but what's interesting is we're seeing Susan fully come to terms with exactly how manipulative her aunt is and she's been through a very life-changing experience and it is very apparent both the good stuff and the bad stuff so on the good side Basically, someone who has about as much sexual experience as the 14-year-old boy back at camp, right away, (laughs) Cord is hip to the fact that there's something going on with Susan, right? You know, she calls her flushed and frothy, I think is what she describes Mm, her as. I think you're right. And Susan just kind of brushes it off like, oh, the wind air and the thinny. And, you know, Cord doesn't know any better. So she's just like, okay, whatever. Like, give me my note, you know? And when she gets the note, there's all these sort of moments where... Susan is kind of in her own small way, standing up to Cord in a way that she normally never would kind of back talking her, but also
1: not going out of her way to be confrontational, but like also being standoffish in yeah. a way that points to the fact that her aunt knows what's up and that she's
0: right in, like, in the bad. I mean, she's been through something and I feel like as awful as it was, there's something about it that has emboldened her. She's a little bit tougher, a little bit stronger and a little bit less willing to put up with cord shit not fully obviously she's still not saying all the things that she wants to say which would be so satisfying to hear her say but there's still you can kind of see that like roland this night has changed her and even in the moments where she's internally pointing out the hypocrisy of not entrusting her with the paper but willing to prostitute her out and to have children the other thing is an If this doesn't tell you about Cord's personality, what Stephen King wants you to feel about Cord's personality is when she doesn't get her way, she sounds just like Blaine. She does the whiny, victimized sort of, but why kind of voice in the same way that Blaine did when he didn't get
1: his way. Yeah, I didn't really put those two together. So that is kind of interesting, actually.
0: Yeah. And we find out what a miser she is and the way that she is holding on to all of this money and you just really know for all the promises that she has made to Susan, if this goes according to her aunt's plan, she's not going to see a penny of that money her mm-hmm. aunt is going to tuck that away and talk about how poor she is forever and unless somehow she gets a hold of it when she dies, Susan would never have seen a penny of that money despite doing all of the labor, literally and metaphorically <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, labor, and, I see what you did there yeah And then finally, we have to talk about the masturbation scene, which is uncomfortable because it's written by Stephen King and bless his freaking heart. (laughs) But I will say this for it. You know, when we met Susan, she goes through a very traumatic sexual violation. And to have her kind of come out on the other end of this after this experience with Roland and kind of feeling back like herself again, she has another sexual experience. But this one is a very natural positive sexual experience that she enjoys and gets pleasure from and feels peaceful about. So I'm kind of like, you get it girl. Good for you, Susan. I'm glad to have the night conclude with something that kind of (laughs) pushes all the other stuff out of her mind. Oh, the one last thing is that we find out that Susan kind of remembers Rhea saying there was one more thing, but can't remember what it was and i it's kind of a mix of it could be the hypnotism that's making her kind of not remember but i also feel like there's an aspect of it where it's just again in the same way that we have this evidence that the boys are kids here she is she's got this minor reprieve for when she's gonna have to bang this old dude and she's just (laughs) fallen in love with this handsome boy on the road you know that she can't believe the timing of and it must be cause essentially And I don't think she wants to confront the fact that she doesn't remember what happened. I think she wants, to some degree, just wants to forget it. She just wants to put the whole Rhea thing behind her and focus on her
1: burgeoning crush with Roland. So one of the things that we got to underline, too, here that I kind of only briefly touched on is Roland even proposed to Susan that she was taken and Roland, in his oh, right. portion of the Grease yes. accounting, You're right. um, was like, well, she's already spoken for, and, but it could be unspoken. And he gets bold, and she has the same bold moment, too, where she's like, you know, m- maybe this could happen. And right. like, they both doomingly know that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Things aren't going to go go right for them if they try to pursue this action right or am i wrong
0: no i think you're totally right in that it's very clear that every single force outside them is going to try to keep these two apart
1: Like Greece, i've seen that movie That's, 100%. This exactly
0: the pink ladies are not on board and neither are the t-birds everybody's going to try <laughs> to keep them apart And so, I mean, I think it sets up a really great tension around this. And, you know, we know this is a tragic love story, right? So you can see the stakes and then these naive kids that are just so in their feelings who are outright rejecting it. And they're like, no, it's fate. And in Roland's case, I'm glad you actually circled back for this because I actually think it's a really important character moment for this in here where they have some great language and passages in here that describe how basically the seed of his obsessive nature basically cracked open for the first time. And so we know obsessive Roland, you know, we know how he is about the dark tower. And so you can see the origin, the birth of this portion of his personality, but the object of his obsession in this case is Susan. And so if we know how doggedly single-mindedly he goes after the things he wants, there's nothing that's going to keep them apart.
1: Well, and the description I believe was like, the first seeds were planted as the blades break through the soil yes. that is rolling. It's sharp blades. And you, you're actually like, Yes, good point. I'm battling tulips right now, which I can't stand at all. <laughs> they keep popping up in my yard <laughs> and their sharp blades cut through anything. Like there's a crack in the cement and they break through it and come out. I don't know why I was focused on tulips so much, but uh, regardless, I went through that section with rolling and the plants and the blades breaking through. I was just like, Yeah fucking plants fuck those plants <laughs> I hate plants they're stupid blades cutting through things and they're always determined to do something and then like yeah. i'm like oh i see what you did stephen king determinate <laughs> and like a force of nature that can't be stopped that exactly. is exactly okay that metaphor is it. has rung true and i still hate plants
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right so Mary, fuck kill plants specifically roses <laughs> roses in particular prairie
1: dogs and i mean let's just stick to plant species like <laughs> if it's roses tulips and apple trees okay oh i would marry apple trees and probably poison squirrels if that was the case Aww. and um uh no no I'm and you'd fuck you. the this rose not- <laughs> yeah, like I no. guess I'd rather you fuck the rose than the prairie dog. Let's move on. Let's, yeah, move let's on. not, let's not <laughs> come to the culmination of that one. Let's just no, no, that. no. Let,
0: let's Ooh. get back into mid world here. Okay, Ooh. so section three, our final section. This is a biggie. Let's break this one down for us, Deej. Uh,
1: okay, okay, okay. So we've had our, like, Darshruck lover scene, and now we have our dirty bar scene. We roll yeah. into this old tavern with, like, drunk people strewn about prostitutes laying askew on the counter with their skirts somewhat flipped up passed out for the evening they've run off the cleaning boy who oh i hate this yeah has the touch a dog rolls in and eats some vomit on the ground oh my god and then doesn't escape the swift kick as he's ushered out the door there's a weird ownership uh description about the bar yeah. and how like who attends it and who doesn't and how that yeah. mayor has some stakes in it but wouldn't enjoy it after midnight once it's covered in crap and the sawdust is sucking up the vomit and puke and blood of the earlier evenings fights we kind of get this strange picture of the prostitution that goes on upstairs and the piano man that plays this horrible wretched music and also apparently let me pause you for behind- a
0: second did you oh, yeah. do you recognize the piano man
1: I don't. Should I? Yes. Is it the same one from um, when Roland basically destroys the entire town at the Toll? beginning? Yes. Yeah, yeah, Toll. Yep, yeah. yeah. Is that yeah. The,
0: that's the same Piano Man? It's Sheb the Piano Man. is the same one in the Gunslinger.
1: Oh, damn. I should have caught that. Sorry.
0: No, it's great. I was kind of hoping you didn't so I could tell you. It's more fun that way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. That makes it
1: even more depressing because that means that dude's been around for a while and like... Uh, So basically we find out that he, like, I guess, sleeps behind his piano on the floor. Yeah. All of these folks that occupy this bar live this horrible, wretched double life of partying hard and then basically being indigents to the bar as both a worker, a sort of property of the bar – And also a staple of the bar as though their proceeds are also wiped out by their attending the same given bar in this vicious cycle of strange bar during the day and evening and sleeping and waking up and rinsing and repeating uh, and rinsing is a strong word because it sounds like a lot of these folks are into the rinsing categories and in fact there's some like darker bits when stephen king's talking about the prostitute is falling asleep on the counter she's doing good enough right now that she can still be in the bar but eventually she'll be doing her business out back uh you know on her knees and it's like whoo Ooh, yeah i know
0: it's grim the just on the cusp of her prime prostitute is
1: grim well let, let's back up before i get into yeah. <laughs> and nibs and, and whatever the heck's going on with that business yeah so basically like scene opens i've kind of described the bar to the best of my ability the traveler's tavern is occupied by several of these coffin hunters who are playing cards And they're moving their hands in such a way that the coffins that are tattooed on their hands seem to almost be alive with the action of this. And they're stewing, well, like rolling cigarettes and one of their group comes in and basically starts talking to the gang. And he's obviously the leader here and asks if they heard anything. And immediately one of them pipes up to say, listen, do we have horses and guys out patrolling this area? And like, turns out they don't, and he's got a good ear and the gang of three have rolled in. So they're already aware very much of Roland and the gang. They kind of have this heartfelt discussion about what to do and that what to do conversation rolls into this sort of interesting, deep thought, but also like sinister thought of what they can and can't do to these kids based on where they're from and like what kind of traps could be set. So They immediately want to think that these are kids in trouble and they sort of like almost basically tell the fake story of what Roland and the gang are up to to themselves is like what they would believe as a plot would roll forward. And that is that, you know, they got in trouble, got sent out here to count, but maybe that's just what they wanted is an actual count of things and someone to look around and see stuff. And these are the type of kids that they couldn't just, you know, shoot and throw in a ditch somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so then they start to formulate, well, what do we do? Well, these guys are likely going to introduce themselves with papers and whatnot tomorrow, and they'll be having dinner. And in the meantime, the rest of you hooligans need to go out and cover up our tankers. Mm
2: -hmm. And this is
1: where we find out that there may be actual operational machinery out in the field, possibly collecting oil from these field of pumps and so on that are out there so what of you know I, and i'm sorry i'm skipping over names here but i'm bad with names as you all know we're gonna circle back don't worry don't worry <laughs> yeah yeah rachel will take care of the the intricate details but the main guy is basically like i will do the important part and they're like well what's that you're not gonna go out there bust your butt cover these things up and hide and stuff and he's like no I'm going to attend this dinner that will inevitably happen when these guys show their papers. I'm going to make sure and like do my research and figure out what they're about. There's an elaborate story told about some people like us like to find the jolly fat guy that buys people beers and chats them up. And some people like to go and talk to the sheriff and so on. And Mm -hmm. he's like, me, me. I like to find a girl, a skinny girl with a nose longer than her breasts who is into everybody's business and is so stuck up and hard that like everybody would know that if they told her something she wouldn't tell anybody something and i'm gonna get my game face on as he's describing this we just previously got a bit of description of the view of him as being like a handsome man who's been in more wet spaces <laughs> no no no,
0: that's a different oh kind. am i mixing
1: those two up yeah okay, okay. the
0: one that's been in all the wet spaces is has getting sent out to deal with the tankard
1: Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I'm mixing those two up. Yeah. I'm sorry. No worries. Um, so anyway, like, uh, yeah, the wet spaces thing. like caught me off guard. <laughs> 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 I'm like, surely the handsome guy is going no, after Aunt Korg. No, watery-eyed Eldred
0: who's going to be doing it.
1: Yeah, and so he's going to find her. He already has her in mind, actually. And also they know that Susan's going to be presented by Hart Thorin during that dinner as well. So uh, all these pieces, like, they've basically plotted out a thing. Mm-hmm. And they're plot is like okay listen like if we can't kill these kids and we can't rightly dispose of them let's slap them so hard that the fear of the coffin hunters is in them for when they're older yeah if they bruise their paw now they will think twice before walking towards them in the future right and it's kind of like a dark sinister and also like deep thought thing and then the thing with the cigarette hmm that one i wanted to underline a few times because the significance of rolling a cigarette around your knuckles falls into the same category as we've seen in other Stephen King books with coins. Yeah, we've seen in these books. Yeah, oh, that's true, too. Yeah. That's like a harken back. Well, I'll let you elaborate because you're better at this than I am. Mm-hmm. But basically, the last thing we get to see of this group is the fact that the dude has kind of a little bit of a limp in his mm-hmm. walk. And then it's sort of narrator's perspective to say that, like, if Court was here, he'd recognize that. Yeah. And then they kind of allude to the fact that these guys were basically failed gunslingers who ended up rolling out into society and eventually finding a gun as they often do Mm -hmm. but always dreaming of the sandalwood grip of an actual gunslinger's Mm -hmm. gun and even to the point where like some of them are wearing some of the facial hair and stylings of said gunslingers, yep. though you best not point that out for fear of pissing them off and having them uh, just take you down flat. And we also get like a little bit of an allusion to the fact that they have a lot more operatives in this area than we originally were sort of led to believe yeah. by patrols and so on going mm-hmm. on. Now, I've done my skims. Yeah. I did want to touch just briefly on the fact that what is the deal with the little 15 year old prostitute that is also like <sighs> somewhat highfalutin? That I, I think is it Roy that's like falling apart? Roy in. A Pape, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's fallen in love with her, like bold legged, gazing, staring into the distance, but higher fluting than suspected. I feel like I should have known more about and it just well, escaped me.
0: I think it's a couple of things. I think one thing, it, it informs us a little bit about De Pape that he's just under the sway of this girl. And, and there's another mention about, like, let's leave De Pape out of the loop on something because I think he's kind of the idiot of the group, right?
1: Ah, uh, okay, okay. And
0: then the other thing is, is we learn a little bit about Jonas Eldridge. There is what he appears to be and what he actually is. And so he kind of looks rough around the edges, kind of like a scummy highwayman. You could get a very particular idea of who he is based on the description of his appearance. But the thing that he doesn't like about this prostitute is that she's ignorant and uneducated. He's very snobbish about her not being intelligent. And I think that tells you a little bit. And as the chapter reveals towards the end, we find out that he is a failed gunslinger, which means he had training. He had education. He came from a powerful family. He grew up in Gilead. And so it just kind of is one of those hints along the way, as we lead into the reveal of who he actually is, is that he has such disdain for people who are, not very smart or, or not very educated.
1: Is this like the trade school guy being judgy of the not graduated from high school guy and the associate's degree guy being judgy of the trade school guy and the bachelor's degree guy being judgy of the associate's degree guy and so on? I think it's
0: the loser from a super wealthy family that failed out of Harvard and then looks down oh, on people. Really, That's what I think Jonas is.
1: So do you think a gunslinger's training is that high? Well, I guess they're yeah. like high speech and they're Absolutely. like learning all these traditions. And
0: not any schmo can get, even get into the gunslinger program. Like, I think that this is an aristocracy. Uh. For instance, you know, he assumes that these kids' families back home, they must come from families that know what's going on. So I do think he's an elitist who's been rejected, but looks down
1: on other people. That's interesting. So I didn't put two and two together on that. Mm -hmm. I was thinking like pot calling the kettle black. Nope. You're right. If you're a gunslinger, like you are probably getting the highest level of training in the land. And even if you're a failed gunslinger, You're, like, almost there, and then anything else is below you. He has
0: total resentment, right? Which is something we touch on at the very end, where he found a gun, but he dreams of the sandalwood-handled guns. That is symbolic of the bitterness and the resentment that he feels. He probably feels a lot of disdain and hatred for these simple folk because he was supposed to be someone who was elite and above them and is forced to be down with the rabble you know it's not an overt thing but it sneaks out in these little character moments but let's step back to the beginning of this chapter or this section really quickly because I just want to point out that oh man Stephen King knows how to set a scene man (laughs) this section basically introduces us to our final major players in this book for the most part you know obviously we haven't met Roy but Generally, we've now met Susan and Cord. We've met Roland, and we've met Elaine, and or not Elaine, but we, have in the same way, we haven't met Depe. We've essentially met him, right? And Cuthbert mm-hmm. And now we're meeting our antagonist, and so it all kind of puts everybody into position for what is really the beginning of this story. Everything else has been preamble. All the stuff with Roland, you know, telling the story. I mean, like. Really, they're just kind of wandering around. Now, this is where the rubber is hitting the road. We are beginning <laughs> the book next week. Really, truly. So, okay. It opens, like I said, with this amazing cinematic description of the travelers. You can absolutely... I mean, you're a filmmaker. Just, you know. You can
1: feel the grossness of this place. Even to the point where, like... When he walks in, he grabs her thigh. Yes. And then walks out and just gives it another squeeze, you know, for mm-hmm. good measure. It's like Ugh. what? Yeah. That is more description. And like and it's fine too, but even to describe the music that was played earlier, yeah. you don't really need the place sitting of the owners of the bar, but it kind of tells you it like does, though. this is a popular yeah. place, but it's also the seedy place where even the owners aren't really willing to go and visit it during yeah. work hours.
0: But I mean, as a filmmaker, can't you just totally feel the one shot that's happening as we're like panning across, you know, the Traveler's Tavern, briefly stopping and looking at, you know, Sheb behind the piano, or the bouncer passed out, or the two drunks that are passing on the table and their hands are practically touching. And you can see it. And then it slowly pans into Eldred Jonas, sitting alone, playing cards at this table. The only sound, the turning of the I mean, it's just so cinematic. I really absolutely love this opening section. I was just... You know, Stephen King can paint a picture with words, and I just think this is. Excellent writing in this opening. Oh, did we here. even
1: need the vomit dog to
0: walk in? <laughs> no, I mean, that's the Stephen King of it, right? Like, you know, he likes to gross you the fuck out. That is one of the tools in his arsenal. But I just thought it was beautiful the way that he set up this scene.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, it's good. And that's why I spent a bit of time describing yeah. all the bits and bops of the bar, is because that is the scene. Really, in a nutshell, like the little bits and bops of them talking is just sort of the cherry on top of what others otherwise a very long description. Yeah. Of of a bar and all of its patrons sprawled out across the bar in a state of disrepair and in pretty bad shape. Yes.
0: I also think it really speaks to how important this character is. Stephen King is like, okay, slow down. I want you to really take a moment to take this in because I am building up introducing you to this character and we were kind of underwhelmed by blaine as a villain and i feel like this description we get of jonas makes me very excited for him as a villain i think it's going to be bad for people that i love but at the same time i love a good villain and i think there is some really interesting aspects to him even before we get into the fact that he's a failed gunslinger and what all that means right so we get a description of him that he's tall with thin long white hair and he's very tanned except for the back of his neck which is always burned and then he has this long mustache that hangs all the way to his jaw and people call it a sham gunslinger mustache like you said and so this is probably our very first hint of what we're getting at in this chapter and learning about who he is there's and it repeats throughout this section where we get these little tiny moments where they are clearly comparing them to gunslingers before the reveal so you get a very clear picture in your mind of what he looks like with these watery red-rimmed eyes that are just devoid of emotion. And so when he finally speaks, when Reynolds comes downstairs, you know, you're not really expecting him to have this sort of reedy, wavery voice. And so what I think makes it interesting is, first of all, it's an unexpected characteristic that just makes him feel much more like a real person. But it also is this juxtaposition of the fact that he has this feeble-sounding voice and way of expressing himself, while at the same time he's, without even looking at it, showing the dexterity in his hands of making these cigarettes, right? And so it's kind of a way of letting the audience know not to let your guard down with him. He may sound a little feeble, a little old, a little weak, but... Do not underestimate him. And you pair that with the fact that we also find out that he is someone who knows about the Manny and the, all the doors in the universe. So there's some hidden depths to this guy that are unexpected of someone who just sort of looks like your standard tavern oh, I tough. think the joke
1: was is don't get him talking or he'll just tell you about yeah. all the world he's been to. Like, yeah. Jesus, that guy, a <laughs> traveling guy who goes to places. Fuck him, you know. I mean? <laughs> but I mean, I think that's a rarity in this
0: world. Someone who has this kind of spiritual knowledge for he sort of straddles the two different worlds of being kind of this physical enforcer but also kind of he has one toe in ria's world which makes him pretty
1: ominous as a villain right that he kind of straddles those two worlds well i know it's weird but the, the first thing i thought when they were describing the candle bar mustache yeah and then you find out about the truck. So like I'm like, I wonder if he's just a really angry trucker well, I mean, in, like, the real world. Oh. And then, like, crosses over and is like, I'm a cowboy on the cowboy side.
0: <laughs> I mean, who knows, right? He knows the man he's passing through the world. His side gig might be doing that American Chopper show. We don't know. <laughs> I mean, because I'm getting American Chopper vibes from this mustache, right? Also, does that mean Stephen Deshane has a big handlebar
1: mustache? Because I had not pictured that. The description that they gave of the faux gunslinger mustache, I remember that guy that was always the Stenson man and like the cowboy in all of the movies up through the early '90s, yeah with the big white mustache. Yeah. I kind of just thought to him right away, and I was like, right, yeah, a s- scraggly version of that guy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? That makes sense. So in addition to meeting Eldris Jonas, we also meet Reynolds. He's the one that comes downstairs, and he is the polar opposite to Jonas, right? When he comes down, they talk about how he has this elaborate cloak on that he wears all the time, and he has this curly red hair and a clean face, and he's very vain and quite a ladies' man. So it's they're very much an odd couple right away, but they have a very easy way about the two of them. We find out that they've been riding together since the other one was 15. And he, too, does some does the little trick with rolling things on the back of his hands. So... I think you can extrapolate that he is also a failed gunslinger and maybe Jonas Eldred is kind of collecting them. So the question is we haven't met the Pape yet, but is it possible that he is also one as well is something to be on the lookout for?
1: I mean, it makes sense that the ranks of the gunslingers that get cast away become the anti-ranks. Right.
0: And, and I think, you know, it's, hard to ignore the obvious comparison between our two bands of heroes and villains. There's three of them. They all have gunslinger training. They all have very distinct personalities that are different. Elaine is asleep. De Pape is asleep. These are echoes. King is definitely trying to draw a comparison to them. The only real difference here, aside from one of them being aligned with the dark side, one of them ostensibly being the good guys, is that one of them is super green And the other one are very seasoned and world-weary and have lived a life. So the balance there already is not in Roland and, you know, our friend's favor. So the other thing that we have a parallel to here is that... When Roland and Stephen's conversation, we learn just like little hints, just enough information of what's really happening behind the scenes to be very tantalizing. The same thing is happening here with the big coffin hunters. They're talking to each other back and forth. And what I is great about this dialogue and frustrating about this dialogue is that it's not exposition dump dialogue. We here, two people who know each other and talk to each other talk in a way that people do so you get bits and pieces and little hints and clues of what's going on without them being laying out their plan for us but those breadcrumbs are you know what makes the mystery compelling we now know a little bit about for instance that they're going to be there for three months and we know that they're in the quote unquote supply business and that they have like you said a lot of people in their employ that are rushing to tell them when strangers come into the area and can report to them. But we still don't totally know what's going on. Another interesting thing is that they're filling tankers from the Sitko oil fields, which to me begs the question, you know, does that mean that Martin has a working distillery? Or are they planning on doing something with the crude oil as it is? We don't know. We don't know. But we know that it's got to be bad, right? And that stuff, you know, is going to be revealed as we go forward, but is compelling and concerning and interesting.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, these these guys seem like bad dudes. Yeah. And then they're also like in the seediest bar. If you can fit in perfectly here, then you got the mark of a bad dude. <laughs> I mean,
0: I, yeah, absolutely. I and the fact that they can fit in here and yet have the kind of minds that they do make them very dangerous. For instance, Jonas when he hears about this is immediately very cautious of the politics of the situation. Sure. He could go and put a gun to the back of their head, but he's thinking around corners like a gunslinger would and thinking about, you know, the parents back home and you know, how risky it would be to deal with them. So he decides, you know, rather than go all the way in, he's going to have a lighter touch. He's going to sideline them by tucking them away over on this ranch by the Finney, which uh, that's messed up, dude. That's not right. But somebody by the thinning is cold-hearted. <laughs> I mean, they're bad guys. Come on. Like, that's
1: a thing they, they would do, That's right? true.
0: That's true. But to have the forward thought to be like, okay, well, we're going to give him a sore paw. And that way we can control the situation more effectively and also sort of eliminate them as a future threat. I mean, it's yeah. good thinking. The thing is, is it's gunslinger thinking. It's just dark gunslinger. It's like the upside down version of gunslinger.
1: Well, I mean, you know, if you go with the yin and yang of any of situation, this is basically the Dark Sith and the regular Jedi. You know? Like, they're people that, like, practice the same art, only the dark way instead of the light way. Right. Honestly, what could be a better a more compelling villain for Roland than, like, a Dark
0: Gunslinger, right? So that, I think, is a great dynamic. The other thing, though, that is the most concerning is that Jonas is already super suspicious before even seeing them that this is some kind of, like you said, game of castles, right? Sight unseen. He's already convinced that the whole boys in trouble is very likely a cover. So Roland doesn't even understand that the one thing he has, he thinks in his favor is that he is able to obscure who he is. That's already not going to work. The only information that Jonas doesn't already seem hip to right away is the fact that, at least Roland is a gunslinger. But Roland has a very bad habit of reaching for his belt every time he gets startled. And the minute he does that, Jonas is going to see it. Mm-hmm. So hopefully he can get his shit together.
1: <laughs> I mean, he's also going to be flummoxed by his lady love. Oh, wandering yes. around. We don't even have to... To drop spoilers, to just set a scene of danger and dismay.
0: Yeah. Oh, when he finds out about Thor Hart, he is going to be heated.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: If we know Crackly Roland. old bones and all. Yep, yep. And we also learned that Jonas was the one who was responsible for Rhea being in charge of the glass crystal yeah the glass ball yeah exactly so i mean i don't know what to think of that even though he may appear like he's a bodyguard clearly he's the person that's in control here and also he knows ria i don't know i don't know why that's significant but i sense that it is
1: it felt like they were painting him as a deep thinker from the beginning got it stephen king gives him sort of that matlock moment where he's like and then this and then this and then this and here we have it he does that while also saying like and i also made this choice earlier on that shows that i have the exact same skill set yeah and it's to reinforce the fact that this guy's got some cunning and he Mm -hmm. didn't get here by accident and he's already obviously got some stakes in the fire so to speak he's iron striking hot with these guys plus he's already been smooth operator about these other things As well as the fact that we've learned ancillarily that he's basically brought himself into power in this small town with the main... sort of quote-unquote royalty of said city yeah and been ingratiated with those folks in a way that has allowed him to basically sort of not 100 percent wrestle power but have like a large stake in what's going on there on top of his own stake that is ancillary to what they think is going on right with the protection of hart thorin and the closeness of those guys hanging around what he's up to and so on this guy is sharp he's got it going on yeah right i mean to me it felt like stephen king just wanted to beat you over the head with like i think you're right hey hey this guy don't don't think i'm stupid he's he's not stupid look at the smart thing he did look at the smart thing he did and those aren't tiny hands those are regular size hands
0: (laughs) so sorry sorry no 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 you're funny so It'll be interesting to see how Roland deals with this. I kind of almost wish grown-up Roland could... I could see grown-up Roland versus Jonas Eldred. Because, I mean, if you think at all the people that we've seen Roland face off against, with the exception of martin and it was not super adversarial when they did actually have their little palaver Mm -hmm. we've never really seen anybody who can match his wit i mean yes blaine was a supercomputer but we've never seen anyone who thinks like roland him face against off against anyone who thinks the way that he does so it'll be interesting to see what young roland does in this situation
1: so it's interesting that you you give Roland that credit because throughout the books, basically Roland himself has explained in no uncertain terms multiple times that that's not his skill set. Right. And even young Roland with the girl, like he's not good at initiating the talking. He's not good at thinking around the situation. Right. He's not good at analyzing ahead of time. He is a reactionary creature. So when you give him that kind of credit, it's like, well – If he claims to not have it as an older person, does he have it when he's a younger person? I mean, honestly, he's so green. He probably does not have it. I
0: think he has more of it than he gives himself credit for. I think he's comparing himself to other gunslingers. But that being said, I mean... What about his father's
1: take and, like, some of those things? Uh,
0: Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess his father doesn't have the, like, most complimentary things to say about him in that (laughs) I thought you were dumb,
1: but now now you've proved yourself stupid is basically, like... Yeah.
0: And Jonas, if he's anything, he's not dumb. In the parlance of this book, he
1: would be a trig one for sure. But then on the opposite side, I, I will, like, give Roland credit where it's due. He was also able to think his way around court and win his battle it,
0: that's what i'm saying i feel and like he so doesn't... it's like a
1: back and forth where you're like are you stupid are you smart are you lucky what is the scenario that makes you like get through this i mean i think he's got good instincts so maybe not like deep thinking but more like he's got a good in gut. The reaction he grabs the right thing and maybe goes.
0: but i also think he has not to be all taken about it but he has a certain set of skills right you know and but in this case So does Jonas, you know, so it's just it'll be interesting to see when they come face to face what that's going to be like, because already Jonas is not underestimating them. I wonder if Roland will be on that same level or if his youth Mm -hmm. will prevent him, because, I mean, here's the thing is at the end of the day. This story is a cautionary tale. This is where Roland learns a lot of lessons. We I don't know what those lessons are yet or what it, how it all comes about, but there is a reason that this is the story that Roland is telling them. It is a seminal event in his life.
1: Not just that, but it's also bound for a tragedy. Oh yeah. Roland is said in un, no uncertain terms like this is a tra- tragedy multiple times ago. Right. You know?
0: I mean, he buckled at the knees, went into like a full PTSD Mm -hmm. when he heard the thinny. So we know this is not going to be like. And then he got a hangnail. You know, like this is (laughs) going to be bad. (laughs) Yeah. So as I said at the beginning of the section, that this is a very much a place setting, and the part where now we have put all of our characters in place, and we are. Getting going in the story, I feel like we leave this section with our characters very much on a collision course for one another. You know, Roland has already taken interest in these oil fields that Jonas is desperate to keep him away from. And so that's going to be a problem. And, you know, Rhea is in possession of this glass thing that her father is hunting. Roland is obsessed with Susan. Susan is obsessed with Roland. That's not going to go well. I mean, just from, like, an internal town politics situation, Cord and Jonas seem like they're on the way to being aligned. Every single character here is now sort of facing off with each other without realizing it, and it's ready to go.
1: So well, don't forget Rhea, too. The ball that's hidden under her, mm-hmm. her bed in this special place is, like, known about by Susan. Right. Good point. That's a very good point. That's the most important thing, like at least from the little snips we got, that that was the thing everybody's searching for. Right. And we know where it's at. And someone knows where it's at other than the person that's supposed to know where it's at. Dun-dun-dun. And
0: probably Rhea's going to be uh, in possession of a lot of information by way of that crystal ball. Mm-hmm. Ooh, ooh it's getting spicy You're up be in looking, here. Looking, and I'm not talking about looking, no masturbation. Looking, it's getting spicy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Overall, what do you think of this chapter, buddy? I mean, I've fallen in love with the term bean flicking <laughs> in the last, like, hour or so. And, like, now I'm going to probably end up accidentally using it in my daily oh, life. Oh, no! And, like, <laughs> it's going to get me into trouble in some Zoom meeting. Oh, no. But uh But o- overall, it's fun. You know, like, I really like the bar scene. Yeah. The young starstruck love business isn't really my forte. Yeah. So, as you guys probably can tell, I, when I fly through these, I'm not as passionate about it as I could be. There's way cooler stuff in the Gunslinger's series that has more action and sci-fi and weirdness to it and this is just your cut and dry cowboy love with ominous paint the town red and clint eastwood style danger in the future all that's cool and classy and i do like it and this wasn't bad overall, but I wasn't completely satisfied until I got to the description of the bar and yeah. the craziness. I mean, that's the All best the part of this box. section. Yeah, that's the yeah. that's really the meat of this. Yeah,
0: I mean, I like this section quite a bit because I felt like I could feel with each chapter, King just turn in that crank, cranking up that tension. You know, here invest in these characters, fall in love with this love story. Here's Cuthbert, isn't he funny and charming? And then to just gut punch you with like oh shit they're so in over their head we knew they were but then when you meet jonas and you find out how smart he is and you find out who he is
1: you're just like fuck it's like that moment in up when they look to the change jar and she goes to the hospital oh
0: god oh my god oh my god oh my god i can't even oh yes (laughs) so as much as there maybe wasn't a lot of stuff going on I appreciated all the play setting that it did and the introduction of some new characters that was fun and interesting. And I and it made me very anxious <laughs> about what what lies ahead of our sweet little 14-year-old Roland, who just got his first <laughs> kiss. Oh, my God.
1: I mean, so the kiss thing I, I thought was funny that that meant so much to him, considering he's already had his romp in the sack with yeah ladies of the night. It's like, well, well I mean yeah I think it comes back to this like you know how it's very much a Romeo and Juliet story
0: it kind mm-hmm. of also goes back to these ideas of courtly love I don't know I feel like there's some of that vibe to it so that the kiss was yeah.
1: meaningful I think you're right there's like a certain thing to that where like going to a sex worker and getting your jollies on isn't really considered anything in the emotional category. It's the physical act yeah, yeah yeah I needed my pipes cleaned and now they're clean anyway back to work yeah. it's a little different than when
0: you genuinely care about. It's just a different... I feel like it activates a different part of your brain. It's more profound. Not that there's anything wrong yeah. with going to a sex worker. Do you, boo? You know, no judgment. No, no, no. I'm not... This
1: is not me putting any judge on anybody. Like, <laughs> you guys do whatever, whatever you want. Just stay safe. Normal life anyway, sex uh, so I, I think we both give this a decent thumbs yeah, up. Thumbs up. Um, I'm probably aiming for three out of five. So yeah. above passing, good job. Yeah, absolutely. Alright, cool.
0: So I don't have any... Aside from the Sheb thing, which we already talked about, I don't have any connections to the Stephen King universe. So plan for the next episode, we are going to be covering Wizard and Glass, Part 2, Susan, Chapter 5, Welcome to Town, where I think things are going to go really great, and he's going to join like a knitting circle and find some new friends. It's going to be great. Nothing bad's going to happen.
1: <laughs> sure enough. Yep.
0: Yeah, so if you're reading along at home, that is your homework assignment for the next two weeks. All right. Movie adaptation news, nothing. Listener feedback. No new emails this week, but we did do our Facebook group question, and I think it's another fun one. This one's a little tricky. This I didn't get quite as many responses because I think this one's a little hard, but I think it's such a fun sort of mental exercise that I want to leave this open. If those of you at home are reading and you have something you want to contribute, I want to leave this as sort of an ongoing question. If along the way you come up with an answer to this as we continue the reading, please send in your feedback and I will read it regardless of it not being connected specifically to this episode because I don't know, I just think it's really fun. Okay, so here is what I asked the group this time. So one of my all-time favorite Dark Tower conspiracy theories. And we all know that I love a tinfoil hat moment in general, but this one's my favorite. And it's about John Farson, a.k.a. The Good Man, who we have not met. I don't know if we ever actually meet him, but he gets name-checked a lot in this section. We find out all kinds of stuff about him. So I thought this would be the perfect time to dig into him a little bit. So the conspiracy theory goes that Farson is actually Da, da 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 jfk and that he passed through to Midworld when he was assassinated hence his slogan which is this is off the top of my head so it may be slightly wrong ask not what the good man can do for you but what you can do for the good man which is of course a play on the like ask not what you can do for your country you know that mm. whole thing plus his whole thing is about Spreading democracy and getting rid of old, you know, archaic fairy tales that is this feudal system, right? And you could see JFK, like dark JFK kind of embodying this, right? He's this charismatic leader. Yeah, that that has some JFK vibes, right?
1: So, hmm. Okay, sure. I, I, not something I'd ever put two and two together for, so, like, good job. Yep. Yeah. so I read it on Reddit, where all the best conspiracy no. theories live. So, okay,
0: so here is my question that I ask the listeners. This is for fun. This is obviously not canon. It's not that serious, but it's all, like I said, it's just fun to imagine, right? So, what other character in the books is actually someone famous from our level of the tower, but somehow ended up in Midworld and took on a new identity?
1: So like I said, it's a little bit tricky, but it's still fun, right? When you put this to me, I was flummoxed for a minute. Okay. And then I was thinking about it because it came up again. And like, we've heard about him in the past about the Manny, and they're walking from world to world and so on. And, like, I don't know if this is right or not, but, like, I got sort of an almost Native American vibe. Okay. Of like, the tribes, you know, they used to do peyote and, like, go into a trance and visit other worlds. Okay. And that was, like, a pretty common thing to to hear in, like, that particular level of folklore. Was there visiting other worlds just them walking from world to world uh-huh. and back again Ooh. and, like, seeing all the craziness of these other worlds? It's in a Western, and you have these wandering nomadic people, and that really, like, sort of sits hand-in-hand with the feel of an ancient, like, Native American mythos, right? Yeah, sure. I don't know. And then, like, on top of that, the bird heads and so on. It's a lot of iconology that harkens back to both Native American and or Egyptian culture. Oh, yeah. So... So both of those are strong sort of underlines for me that makes me feel like less of a person that's fallen through, but more of an entire group of people. Right. Oh, I like it. walk the planes. And then like you also have high planes drifter. Those sorts of terms makes it feel like they're drifting from plane to plane. I like it. And from plane to plane. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> awesome. Okay. So let me read you what our listeners suggested, and then I'll close out with mine. Because I spent way too much time thinking. (laughs) (laughs) I I know you'll be shocked to hear that, DJ, knowing my personality, that I obsessed about something and spent an enormous amount of time researching on the internet.
1: (laughs) You got like five minutes of brainstorming from me, so (laughs) sorry.
0: Here's the thing, but again, proving... Why both of our styles work for us. You totally came up with something super fun and compelling. I would not have been able to. I needed to dig into the text. Okay. So Tim, our buddy Tim, chimes in and he says it's not a specific character, but he has someone who he thinks, even though we don't see the person in the book, may have slipped through. Okay. So he says, not a specific character, but given people's love for Hey Jude in Roland's world, mayhap... John Lennon ended up in Midworld upon his death and brought the music with him. Hey Jude was Paul's song written to John's son, and John was fond of it. John was awful at remembering lyrics, so the fact that the words are different in Midworld, e.g. Don't Make It Bad became I See You Lad adds up. Maybe Farson heard revolution and had a moment of inspiration. Maybe those with the shining heard instant karma and latched on to the we all shine on refrain. This is such good conspiracy theory. I freaking love it. So if you're
1: going to link those, then you almost need to, like, make him Shev, the piano player. (laughs) Maybe he is Shev! Right? This shamble of a man who's lost his family and died in another world and plays music that, like, tortures and torments people. Yes, I like it. Okay.
0: All right. And then he says, Maybe John saw the tower from afar and retooled the new tune called Rose-Covered Fields Forever maybe now this is spoiler territory this is where we get into spoilers so if you are super spoiler verse this one is pretty you know it's not super intense but mine will be so if you do not want spoilers for later book stuff bounce and i will see you in two weeks
1: slapping my mud stick down this... right
0: here
2: in the ground
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, so he says maybe he eventually became so starved for attention and admiration that he became spoiler dandelo dandelo how do you say that i don't even know dandelo
1: i don't know right
0: feeding off such emotions i know my case isn't very strong but it's fun to think about i don't know i think it's just as good as it... these are conspiracy theories that's the point they don't have to have evidence
1: <laughs> uh, i mean it would be nice if someday like stephen king wrote a subtext that was like here you go guys this is an explanation of everything that was actually going on here and you're like oh can you imagine and people people would be so mad they'd be like no stephen you're wrong You're wrong. Obviously, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, my God. I totally
0: know what our next Facebook question is going to be. It's going to be, if you could ask Stephen King one question about the Dark Tower, what would it be?
1: And then what would you tell him when
0: the answer was not what you wanted? I know, right? How hard would you storm out when he was just like, I don't know, I was high. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Chris Floyd also weighed in with another really fun one. So he says, here's one I think might have some merit. Charles Burnside, a.k.a. the Fisherman in Black House. Have you read Black House? Nope. Well, we might have to put it on the docket, my friend, because it is the sequel to The Talisman.
1: Okay. Well, I like The Talisman. Yes.
0: It's kind of like Doctor Sleep in that it revisits the main character when he's much older and sort of dealing with, you know, like all the shit that happened in his life. All right. So his theory is that the Fisherman in Black House is a reincarnation of Jeffrey Dahmer. Burnside is a resident of Wisconsin where the book was set roughly in the year 2000. He abducted and killed several children in the area and often at the request of the Crimson King. He also had a penchant for eating parts of his victims. Jeffrey Dahmer was a Wisconsin resident famous for abducting, murdering, and eating mostly adolescent males in the late 80s and early 90s. He died in prison about seven years before the book was set. This is just the kind of person that the Crimson King would want to employ to further his ends. Ooh, that's a good one! That's a good one! Okay, so what do you think of that one?
1: My life for you, Lord.
0: <laughs> I know you don't know who the fisherman is, but trust me, Deej, that is a really good one. <laughs> and it's actually kind of along the same line as mine. So are you ready for mine?
1: All right, lay it on us.
0: Go select your favorite tinfoil hat and place it upon your head because it is now time to hear my nonsense. <laughs> okay, so here is my conspiracy theory. Okay. I think that Richard Sayer, a.k.a. the Executive Vice President of the Sombra Corporation. So this is obviously, again, spoilers because we're going to get into Song of Susanna shit here. So major spoilers. Okay, so I think he is dun-dun-dun serial killer hh H. holmes hmm. yes so do you know who hh H. holmes was
1: i mean i vaguely am familiar with serial killers is he the kidnapping guy or is he the one that drove down the interstate and murdered all those gas station attendants
0: so he is america's first serial killer he's the guy that... oh is that the house guy yeah the entire
1: house the castle and dropped into like yes yep Yep, okay, I know what you're saying. Okay,
0: right? Okay, so serial killer H. H. Holmes, in my conspiracy theory, was recruited by the Crimson King after he or perhaps wasn't uh he was allegedly executed by hanging on May seventh, eighteen ninety six allegedly right so my reason for picking him is because first of all his appearance fits the description according to his description in song of susanna richard sayer is slim middle aged handsome in a full-lipped broad-browed kind of way he's also a charming sociopath like holmes he has real estate experience, kind of, because he built the torture <laughs> castle. He owned the,
1: like, torture building. <laughs> he, that, like, I mean, he built
0: that thing, so he knows about real estate, right? He was a landlord, you know, renting out rooms to all the people he was going to kill.
1: For, like, a minute.
0: Yeah, so you could see him being a good fit for Sombra, right? So Richard Sayers is in Detroit versus Chicago, but they're midwest i can see him making a little bit of a move right he also has extensive knowledge about human anatomy which would make him a good candidate for assisting the birth of Susanna's baby and Mm. he liked to remove the skin of his victims which is a pretty handy skill for someone that likes to hang out with the tahine. just
1: saying i didn't know he removed the skin of his victims i knew about the inferno room and many of the other like pre-nazi torturous death things that he did yeah but the skin thing was also a deal. Yeah,
0: he would remove it. I mean, he started with animals, which is awful, but he would dissect them and stuff. And so he would do similar things to some of his bodies and he would burn the skin off with acid or he would pull it off. Really grotesque shit. Dude was hmm. messed up, right? So, like I said, yeah, good for hanging out with Daheen. Now, here's the little interesting thing. When Holmes was buried, he made sure that his coffin was surrounded by cement so that nobody could mess with his body, supposedly. What? Yes. Or it could be that he didn't want anyone to know that he was missing, because there was persistent rumors that he actually did not get executed but escaped somehow. In 2017, these ongoing rumors, like the family of H.H. Holmes just wanted to put them to rest, right? So they petitioned the court in Delaware and successfully were able to exhume the body. So on March 9th, 2017, they did exhume it and they found a body inside and the DNA matched, proving that it was in fact him. But here's the twisty twist. This is where it gets interesting, Right. He was not decomposed the way that a body normally should be, considering that he was supposed to have been in that grave since 1896. He still had his mustache. So my conspiracy theory is, is that's because he was actually taken by the Crimson King. (laughs) And died in 1999 after the events of Song of Susanna. Because, like, that's where he dies is in that book, right? So then that would make sense that his body was only partially decomposed when they dug him up 18 years
1: later. Uh, or... I don't want to shoot too many holes in your It's a conspiracy theory. But, like, if they put him in, like, a nice cement coffin and put him deep down to below freezing, he would have maintained, like, a low dry climate. Yes. And you would have had a bit of mummification, which would basically eliminate some of the regular decomposition that you would have. These are all fair facts, but who has time for facts? (laughs) What, you're going to tell me aliens didn't build the pyramids I mean, my favorite pyramid theory is the vibrating sound that was used to lift rocks into the air and, like, move them around. It's often demonstrated by two oscillating tones picking up, like, a P and moving it around. (laughs) And you're like, well, yes, that is a P. What did they have? Giant bells? Like, yeah, of course. Like, how big of a bell would you need? (laughs) And you start, like, working backwards, and you're like, well, actually, this would be a bell the size of the pyramid to move one of these rocks around. You're making baby Giorgio Tsukalos cry right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so yeah that is my conspiracy theory obviously it, it failed but I'm sticking to it because that's what you do with a good conspiracy theory screw facts that disagree well, with your theory like the,
1: the South Park joke about conspiracy theories where it's like this is very 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 unlikely
0: so you're saying it's possible <laughs> exactly my thoughts exactly so you're saying there's a chance <laughs> awesome okay well that is it for our listener feedback for those of you at home who have a character you want to suggest as potentially someone from uh you know keystone send me an email at thecastofca at zombiegirls.com or come on over to the facebook join us join us where you can answer this question i'll be keeping an eye on this one or whatever we end up asking next week which i think i already gave away so (laughs) For those of you at home who want to hear more from DJ, DJ, where can they find you on the
1: internet? I mean, besides this podcast here, you can also swing over to Deadlander.com's world-famous Splattercast, where that continues to be somewhat of a thing. You can also rummage around on the internet for my old YouTube videos, uh, teaching rappers how to make beats, teaching people how to make films, and so on. And speaking of films, you can swing over to Amazon and buy some of our most recent films, including uh, Shivers Down Your Spine and Chills Down Your Spine, and maybe even possibly Isabel at some point in the future. What?! If Matt ever pulls the reins off of that one and lets it back out into the wild. (laughs) Uh, What about you, Rachel? Where can people find you? Well,
0: if you want some more of this voice in your ear holes... First of all, I apologize in advance for that statement. You can find me on the Zombie Girls 4 podcast as well as the Stream Queens podcast and the More Deadly podcast and occasionally on the Here's Johnny podcast. Next episode we're recording will be about The Last of Us. It got postponed. So if those of you who are hoping to hear it are like, where the hell is this episode? That's because family emergencies, all kinds of, you know, you know how it goes. But we are recording that this week. So that will be out soon for you to enjoy. All right. That's it. DJ, take us out.
1: Now, for this outro, I'd like you to close your eyes and imagine for a moment, if you will, Mm -hmm. a wild haired gentleman in a disheveled suit speaking directly into the camera, telling you that the pyramids were built by aliens (laughs) and that it is very unlikely that that is not the case, and everybody realizing that there might actually be a chance that it is dun 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 and we might come back too as a podcast we're probably coming back there's a chance that we might come back so uh you'll see us next week probably (laughs) unless you don't uh conspiracy laid down and put in stone good night
0: good night everybody
1: confusingly
0: poor planned
1: outro (laughs) i nailed Nailed it it. (laughs)